Some of you haven't been with us very long, and so I want to let you know that you're kind of jumping in midstream here as we return to the book of Ecclesiastes. We started this study through the book of Ecclesiastes last spring, and we took a break beginning at the beginning of September for a short series. But this morning we jump back in, actually in the middle of chapter 8. Now pick up the reading at verse 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, reading from verse 10 through 17. Please give your careful attention. This is God's holy, inerrant, and powerful word. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. When the singer Billy Joel was growing up as a teenager on Long Island, he had a crush on a beautiful girl named Virginia Callahan. But Virginia would not give him the time of day. But then Billy formed his first rock band. And at his band's first concert at his high school, he was up on stage singing his heart out. And lo and behold, there in the front row, looking up at him with starry eyes, was Virginia Callahan. Billy says that's the day that he decided that he had to be a musician. But Billy never got anywhere with Virginia because she was a good Catholic girl who wouldn't have anything to do with the likes of him. Several years later, Billy wrote the lyrics to one of his first big hits and one of his most well-known songs called Only the Good Die Young. Here's just a couple of sections of lyrics from that song. Come out, Virginia. Don't let them wait. You Catholic girls start much too late. Well, they showed you a statue, told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away. But they never told you the price that you pay for the things you might have done. Only the good die young. 
They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know, only the good die young. Later on, Billy would say that that song was actually intended to be much more pro-lust than anti-Catholic, but the Catholic Church and Christians in general became very upset about the song, and several archbishops wrote to the radio stations in the cities where they served to say, you need to ban this song, don't let it be played on the airwaves, which of course made it a mega hit. Later on, Billy wrote a letter to the same archbishops asking them to ban his next record. (laughs) But that's not the only thing that's ironic about that story. What's ironic is that those two main messages of that song, that only the good die young and the sinners have more fun than saints, are actually biblical messages. The Bible actually says the same thing in so many words here in Ecclesiastes, as well as several other places. Because that is an accurate observation of the way things are under the sun. If this life is all there is, then there's an awful lot of truth to those statements. That the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And what difference does that make? especially since some of you weren't with us earlier this year when we started and worked our way through this series. Let me give just a brief review, and those of you that heard this several times, bear with me, but I just want to remind you of some of the unique ways that you have to be careful to interpret the book of Ecclesiastes correctly, because it's not written the same way that most other sections in Scripture are written. There are parts of Scripture that we have to be very careful with. For instance, the, the parts of the book of Job that quote Job's friends. You always have to be careful how you quote those passages of scripture because you have to understand them in light of the context in which the book is written. And Ecclesiastes is much the same way. What we said is that we've seen in our studies is that Ecclesiastes was probably written by a great and wise king of Israel, maybe Solomon, very possibly. But whoever wrote it did not write it in his own voice. He introduces the book, and we'll see at the end of the book, he makes his own comments. But for the bulk of the book, the vast majority of the book, he's writing in the voice of a somewhat fictitious character, a character he calls Koheleth. That's in the English, it's usually translated the preacher. I said it's probably more accurately for the right connotation in our language, the teacher, or I call him Professor Koheleth, but I can't pronounced Koheleth, and I have to say the name all the time, so I just call him Q. So I call him Professor Q. But this is the voice of the person who gives us most of what's said in the book of Ecclesiastes, but understand that this preacher, teacher, professor, he is actually speaking from a a self-defined, limited worldview, which he calls under the sun. And that phrase, under the sun, is the key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes, that the observations that are given there by this Professor Q, or as I call him Q, for short, that his observations do not include anything that can be known from above the sun or beyond the sun. He is a researcher. He studies diligently all the areas, all the aspects of life. He was 
a multifaceted scientist. He wasn't only into anthropology or sociology. Or, you know, he was into every area of science. He pursued the area of wealth and possessions. He pursued the area of academia, wisdom, knowledge. Exhaustively, he used all his massive resources to find out if he could find meaning and truth. He, he searched out sensual pleasures. He tried out all the five senses to see if pleasure in this world under the sun could bring him meaning and purpose in life. He pursued relationships. He pursued power and status. But at the end of every section, after, at the end, the, 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 the conclusion to every study that he does is this, very simple. All is vanity. Everything is meaningless. There is no meaning or purpose if all that is true is what we can know from our five senses under the sun. And we've said over and over again that the purpose, why did God put a book like this in the middle of his book? Why did he inspire this book to be written? It's to drive us to the rest of scripture. Because God has spoken from heaven. There is revelation of what's true above and beyond the sun. There is an eternity which you need as, to understand as a context to what is temporal and terrestrial and temporary. And so that's why we have this book. It describes so much of the worldview of your friends and neighbors who don't know Christ, who are searching desperately to find meaning and purpose under the sun. And whether they'll admit it or not, they keep coming back to the same conclusion that Q does, all is meaningless. All is vanity. Well, as we've seen, as we've worked our way through the book, one of the recurring themes in Q's observations is how life under the sun is so unfair. It's not just, it's unjust. Where is the justice? He keeps crying out in many different ways. And the thing that bothers, seems to bother him most, is that the wicked live long and prosper, to put it in the words of the great philosopher Spock, the, the wicked live long and prosper, and yet the righteous suffer. That's not fair. It's not right. And if all that's under the sun is true, that is the thing that seems to disturb him more than most. Listen, we live in a world that calls wrong right and that calls right wrong. That's the world we face every day. That's a reality we have to deal with every time we read the headlines in the morning paper. And in our cultural context, it seems to be getting harder, more difficult to live as people of the faith in a world that keeps calling wrong right and right wrong. How do we live in an upside-down world? How do we do it? How do we keep going? There's a popular question that you've heard many times, which is, why do bad things happen to good people? And Q asks that question. But he also asks, and seems in some ways more fascinated by the inverse of that question, why do good things happen to bad people? He looks around at the world around him, and both are equally true. And both are wrong. And he has a moral, spiritual aversion. You know, it totally upsets him that that's the reality that he has to live in every day. Well, the first thing as we look at the text in front of us right now is that he learned some very important lessons at a funeral. He's already, remember if, if you were with us back in the beginning of chapter 7, he's already advocated 
spending more time at funerals than at weekend parties. He says in in chapter 7, verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, it's at funerals that you're faced with the end of your story. You want to find meaning and purpose in any story? You need to understand the ending. And your story always ends at death. Everybody's story ends at death. And so we have a tendency to want to avoid going to funerals. But Charles Spurgeon said the sight of a funeral is a very healthy thing for the soul. I mean, we can live and distract ourselves and satisfy ourselves pursuing meaning and purpose in the things under the sun all day long, but go to a funeral and all of a sudden you realize how temporal life is, how we are like the grass of the field here today and gone tomorrow. And you need to deal with that reality in order to face life. That's what Q keeps telling us. Well, as you look at verse 10, Hebrew scholars tell us that this is an extraordinarily difficult verse to interpret, to translate, to make sure that they have that. they're not, just not quite sure how to translate it from the Hebrew into English. And so if you were to look at this verse in a number of different English translations, you would see it worded in several different ways. I'm not going to get into all that because you get the gist of it. It's basically Q went to a funeral for a prominent person in his culture, in his society, somebody who was very prominent. I'm guessing it was a king. You know, again, he's speaking in the context of Israel. So I'm thinking it's one of these many wicked kings of Israel, prominent, powerful, but wicked kings of Israel. And he went to the funeral. And you get the sense as you read verse 10 He's so disturbed because undoubtedly at this funeral there was pious religious language used and undoubtedly there were glowing, flowery eulogies praising the deceased. It's the same discomfort that we should feel whenever we hear Christian funerals being given to heads of state that did everything to undermine the purposes of God's kingdom. When you hear these flowery tributes given to, to profane entertainers who become big celebrities and then die, that there's, there's, there's at, at, at the core of our reaction to that, there's this sense, this is wrong. They, they, they violated God's word. They, they, they lived for wickedness. They promoted wickedness. They led others into wickedness by their wicked example. And yet here they are. Not, they, they, they lived an easy and prosperous and long life. And at the end of their life, at their funeral, they get praised by all the people. And that's really, if you, if you understand that, you understand what's troubling Q here. Is he experienced something very similar to that? It's bad enough that the wicked person wasn't punished. It didn't have to deal with the consequences of his wicked behavior during his life. But now he's being praised at the end of it. And of course, remember, if your worldview says that under the sun is all there is, death is an escape from consequences to your wickedness. And he goes on in verse 11 to say, it's not only is that disturbing, but it's disturbing to him what effect that has on the culture. He says in verse 11, because the sentence against evil an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man are fully set to do evil. There's a good statement of total depravity in a nutshell, that that's our nature that without external negative consequences to our behavior, we're going to pursue sin to the hilt. And it's only 
external, you know, why are your neighbors all good neighbors if they aren't believers? It's because, they, you know, it's not because they're wonderful, God-fearing, God-honoring people in their heart. It's because they do the right things because they don't want the negative consequences. And so we know that's a principle in our own system, that we want a speedy trial when a crime's been committed. Not only because that's the right of the accused, but also because if justice is delayed, it encourages wickedness in the culture. And that's really what he's saying here. I mean, if you have small children, you know, toddlers, you're dealing with toddlers. If you delay punishment, that bad behavior is going to get worse. They need to connect their bad behavior to the punishment. And that's really what Q's saying is we're all toddlers at heart. If there's no bad consequences, we're going to get worse. And we do see that in society. How do you feel if you're out in a public place, you're out at the playground or you're at the mall or at the grocery store and you see a parent that seems to totally ignore a child who's badly misbehaving? How you react to that parent is how Q is reacting to God here. God, look at what these people are doing. Supposedly you see things all and you know all and nothing happens. Matter of fact, they live a long and prosperous life while flaunting their disobedience in your very face. That's what's troubling him. And I need to stop for a second here, or pause for a second, and look at verses 12 and 13, because this is, and I'll admit, first time I read this, I, wow, this might blow my whole, inter- my way of interpreting Ecclesiastes out of the water, because he seems to say something that, that, that doesn't fit with everything else that Q has said in the book. If you just look, just look there for a second, basically at the end of verse 12, beginning of, and, and in verse 13, he suddenly says, this. He says that he knows that things will go well for those who fear God, but things will not go well for the wicked and they won't live long. That directly contradicts what he just said in the beginning of verse 12 and what he is just about to say in verse 14. The two verses, two statements on both sides of of that are directly contradicting what he says in that middle section. And that's what, you know, as as we wrestle to understand this passage of Scripture, what's going on here? Some interpreters think that the real writer, whether it's King Solomon or whatever great and wise king wrote the book, actually allows his own perspective to peek in here and and, and kind of interrupt the flow and say, this is is what's really true. I don't think that's what's going on. I think whoever wrote this book was very careful to stay in character, so to speak, with Q through the whole thing. I think what Q is doing, the best way to understand it, is he's saying this is conventional wisdom. This is what we've been taught. See, he's comparing what he's observing of life under the sun to the moral standards of the culture, the things he was taught, that this is the way it should be. That if you do good, you're going to be rewarded, but if you sin, you're going to be punished. That we do that with our children because that's the way God is with us. As a matter of fact, isn't that kind of what the Old Testament law says? Let me take you back to Deuteronomy 28. Listen to what God said to his people under Moses. He said, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field goes on in verse 6 to say, Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. But you know that passage of Scripture. At the end, then it pronounces the curses upon those who don't obey God's word. 
Beginning in verse 15, it says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed, in verse 19, cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 say, Let your heart keep my commandments, and length of days and years of life they will add to you. That's what Q's saying is this, this is what we've been taught. This is what should be true. This is the way the world should be. But the world seems exactly the opposite so much of the time. You can understand how that would make you doubt whether what you believe about the way it should be is maybe true. I think that instead of seeing verses 12 and 13 as a statement of faith, we need to understand it as a cry of despair, and even, I think, to go so far to say is a complaint on the part of Q. He's complaining about God's passivity in the face of wickedness that he sees. This holy God who can't stand to look upon sin, and yet he doesn't act. He doesn't cause the wicked to suffer. I personally am so thankful that the books, the books like Ecclesiastes and Job and Psalms are in the Bible. Because it shows us that God, the God who loves us, expects us to wrestle with doubt. He knows that he's put us in an upside-down world under the sun where so much of what we look at all day long contradicts what we believe to be true. And he understands how difficult a thing he's asked us to do is to walk and live by faith and not by sight. In Psalm 10, verse 1, it says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In Psalm 44, it says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Rise up and come to our help. The Psalms are filled with those kind of pleas. The Bible teaches us to pray like that because we're going to have those weak moments. We are going to struggle with doubt. The question is, what do we do in those moments of weakness? And we're not doing God any favors if we act like we're absolutely sure about what we believe all the time. I had um, a good friend of mine in college who was in a tragic car accident. Two of his best friends were killed in the accident. And he was laid up in the hospital for many months. I tell this story a lot because it had such a, the incident had such a profound impact on me. But his reaction to it, I remember several things that he said. And one of the things that sticks with me the most is he talked about those many months where he laid in the hospital bed, unable to do anything for himself, pain and discomfort. And he said, I was so thankful during those months for all my friends and loved ones that came in to visit me and to encourage me and help me get through that. But he said after several months, it did get to the point where if one more Christian walked into the room and quoted Romans 8.28 to me, I swear I was going to strangle him. You know Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. I understood exactly what he was saying, and that stuck with me a long time. Especially important that we as pastors understand that. Doubt, especially in times of great suffering and tragedy, 
is something we have to deal with. We can't just skip over it to Romans 8.28 and put a smile on our face and go on with our lives. Taking questions to the Lord, taking our doubts to the Lord is an act of faith. It's an act of weak faith, but it's an act of faith. You see, what you don't do in your doubts is use them for an excuse to turn your back on God. Use them as an excuse to go indulge in sin or to live out the ways under the sun. What you do with your doubts and questions when your, weak gets, your faith gets weak is that you go to the Lord and you cry out to him like the Psalms say and say, what, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you hiding from me? Why does it seem like you're sleeping up there? You're not paying any attention to what's going on here on earth. The Lord wants us to pray those prayers. And when we do it in faith, his spirit comes to strengthen that faith, to get us through it. But you'll notice that in the passage here, Q's not quite to that point, is he? Because he comes to his pragmatic conclusion. We've heard this over and over and over. If you've been with us through these studies in Ecclesiastes, look at verse 15. I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. He's despairing over the reality of what life is like under the sun. He can't find meaning and purpose in anything under the sun. And so what does he say? This is, this is his bottom line. Every time he does a study, he comes to this bottom line. He says, go out and have a good meal. Go down to Otto's, go down to the Allen Street Grill, go somewhere and have a really fine meal. Eat and drink and be merry. Go take a nice walk in the woods. Enjoy the creation. Read a good book. Catch a good movie. Because if all that is true is what we can discern what's under the sun with our five senses, if that's all there is, that's the best you can hope for. That is the good life. The problem is you can't guarantee that good life by doing good things because it doesn't work that way under the sun. So he always qualifies saying, well, if God gives you that opportunity, go ahead and enjoy the good things, but that's about all that you can have. See, it's not really given to comfort us. It's to say, you know, do you notice that he never advocates pursuing sin or the pleasures of sin? Because he talks about the pleasures of sin, but he doesn't advocate for that because he's a wise man under the sun. And he recognizes that although sin gives great pleasure in the short run, even under the sun, sin destroys under the sun. And in his wisdom, he says, don't pursue the pleasures of sin. He believes in God creator. We've seen that over and over again. He doesn't have revelation from God in his worldview, but he believes in God as a creator. And he looks at this wonderful creation. He says, well, that's the only thing you can hang on to. Go enjoy that creation. Good food, good drink, everything good that God has made. If God allows you that opportunity. Says, I, you know, I, he says, I believe in a God of creation. It's, the evidence is undeniable. But where's the God of providence? Where's the God of justice? He's sleeping. He's not paying attention. That's Q's perspective, because all he sees is what's under the sun. So let me bring you back to that reminder we need in every one of these messages. Is that the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to drive us to the rest of Scripture to drive us to the answer that God has given. God has spoken. 
we have a word from God. Matter of fact, that word has come in the form of a person, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. God has not only spoken, he has entered into history under the Son. And that's the eternal solution to Q's problem. It's interesting, if you turn over to the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, he actually had the same questions, many of the prophets had the same questions as Q. But Malachi had the same questions, and notice how he, he lays out the dilemma as though God's people are actually wrestling with this whole inequity and injustice under the sun in verses 14 and 15 of Malachi chapter 3. It says, For you have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What good is it to be good? What good is it to mourn over evil? Verse 15, And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Saying the same thing that Q said. But look at what's revealed to him from heaven. Verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The importance of mutual edification. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son and who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God says, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to save my people. And you will see a distinction. You, by faith, need to understand you will see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And he goes on to give the final word on that in the beginning of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that we'll leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings." You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Not only is God going to send a deliverer, not only is he going to save his people, but he is going to judge the wicked. And every sin that has ever been committed in thought, word, and deed will be paid for completely and in full. Judgment is coming. You see, Jesus Christ came to do the work of God that Q could not discern. Verses 16 and 17, he talks about you can't, you know, he's devoted his life to understanding not only the works of man under the sun, but the work of God under the sun. And he says, you can't figure it out. The wisest man on earth cannot figure it out, he says. That's why you need Jesus Christ. Because in man's wisdom, man cannot figure it out. But God has given his wisdom because he's given us his son. Look at verse 14. I was studying this verse all week, and it wasn't until the end of the week it suddenly dawned on me that there's a foreshadowing here of the gospel. Look at verse 14 in the text, in in, uh, Ecclesiastes 8. And I'm going to read to you a paraphrase, modify it just slightly to show you how it reflects the message of the gospel. There was a righteous person to whom it happened according to the deeds of the wicked. And there is an elect group of the wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds 
of the righteous one. That points to what we call imputation. The fact that the righteous, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived both as fully God and fully man and lived a perfect life on earth, that that record of perfect righteousness has been given to those who put their faith in him. It's reckoned to us who are wicked. And our wicked deeds have been reckoned to him who was perfectly righteous. And he paid for them in full at the cross. That's the work of God that Christ came to reveal. The work of God that Christ came to do. The cross and the resurrection. And as Malachi says, the hope is in the resurrection. We will all stand before Christ on judgment day. And we will all be shown to be wicked. But those who believe in Christ will have their sins forgiven. And they will be seen as righteous and accepted into God's kingdom forever. One of the clearest answers to Q's questions is actually found in 2 Peter. It's very similar, again, the same themes that we have in Q and the, Old, in the Psalms and the Old Testament prophets. But here, after the resurrection of Christ, Peter speaks of the same dilemma. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See that? The same question that Q had. Where is this God of justice? Christ has said he's coming back to judge sin, but everything goes on as the same as it has since the beginning. Well, Peter at that point reminds them that God has intervened one time in worldwide judgment where all were wiped, all the wicked were wiped off the face of the earth except one man of faith, Noah, and his family. He reminds them of that great act of judgment. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, But the, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Judgment is coming. The wicked acts of all of us will be paid for. For some of us, they'll be paid for 2,000 years ago on the cross. For all the rest, they'll be paid for throughout all eternity under God's wrath and justice. That's the word from heaven. That's what we can't see and know with our five senses, but know is true by faith. And that's what makes everything under the sun make sense. Peter goes on to say, talk about why is God delaying his justice. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, this is the day of salvation. Praise God that he's not punishing sin today, that he's delaying his justice so that we can take the message of Jesus Christ to others who were like we were, and need that hope, need that meaning, need that purpose in life that the word from heaven can bring to us. R.C. Sproul says about two-thirds of the New Testament, either directly or indirectly, refers to the end times, which is interesting because the Lord wants us to keep our focus on what's to come because that's how we understand life today. 
The way you view your life, the way you interact with everybody and everything in your life today is to be in the context, in, against the backdrop of what's coming. What's true beyond the sun as Christ has revealed it. We must build each other up in that scriptural perspective. In Acts 17, the church talks about the church being persecuted in Thessalonica. And here was the testimony of the unbelieving community about the church in Thessalonica, according to Acts 17. said, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. You see, that's really what we're about in this day of salvation while we wait for our judge to return and our savior to return is that we are to be out there turning the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the world looks at what we're doing and say we're upside down, but we look at them and we, we have God's perspective through his word and we say it's the world that's upside down and we need to take the truth to them. Paul said to the Corinthian church, yet among the mature we impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And what was that wisdom? Christ crucified and risen from the dead. We are able to live in joy and hope and peace and contentment in an upside-down world because we know the big picture because God has revealed to to us by his grace through his son and his word. Christ is on the throne and the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet visible, except we're sinners through the gospel, believe in Jesus as risen from the dead and Lord over all, and live under his lordship. That's how the kingdom comes. That's why we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's turning the world upside down. Let me just close with one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. That's the truth we've been given. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening our eyes by your grace, to see reality above the sun, to see eternal things that can only be known as you have revealed them through your Son and through his word. Father, we didn't earn this. We weren't smarter than anybody else. We weren't more spiritual. We weren't more religious. You have chosen us. You have regenerated our hearts. You've opened our eyes. You've opened our ears. You've drawn us to Christ And we do know the truth because you've given it to us. May we be faithful in proclaiming that truth before a world that desperately needs to hear it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.